chapter 6, and uh, we're going to uh, continue in the good word that Josh shared last week. If you didn't get Josh's, uh, haven't heard Josh's message, I highly encourage you to get on the podcast and listen to, to what Josh, Josh did. Uh, we're going to look at, again, at the difficult sayings of Jesus in John chapter 6, and these are really, really hard sayings. And what I want to do this morning is, is talk about becoming an adult in the faith. This whole chapter really is about responding to the hard things Jesus says and becoming an adult in the faith. Um, in fact, the whole paragraph is about building an adult relationship with Jesus. So I want you to, to, to think for a second about a time in your teen years where you were f- upset that somebody wasn't giving you adult-like responsibilities. It can be hard for some of you to get back into those teen years, right? But I want you to kind of get into that, into that mindset and think about being in that place. Maybe you wanted to stay out late, and your parents imposed a curfew, and you thought it was ridiculous, and you say, you're treating me like a kid. Remember that, when that happened. Or maybe you wanted to use the car for a road trip, but that trip took you through a dangerous part of the city, and your parents said, no, I don't think we're going to let you have the car to do that. And you said, I hate that. You're treating me like I'm a kid. You wanted to be an adult. Maybe you're in your first job, and you wanted some money for a project, and you asked for the money, and the person who held the purse strings said no, and you felt angry because you felt like you were a kid. It's natural for kids to, to seek the privileges of adulthood, right? I mean, their bodies are growing, their minds are expanding, they feel like they have good ideas, and they want to be adults, and then somebody says, nope, I'm going to put a boundary around that desire you have for that adult responsibility. Well, then here's the thing about being an adult, though. Once you become an adult, there are there are issues with that. When you're an adult, people want to measure your performance. That's not fun. When you're an adult, you face consequences for mistakes, and the crazy thing is people want you to make it right when you make a mistake. When you're an adult, you have regular obligations that feel burdensome and unfair. You face routines and schedules and minimum payments. Being an adult is not all that it's cracked up to be if you're a kid. Because now you're responsible to do things, right? In American culture, we've seen an interesting trend. And the trend is that adulthood has been pushed back 10 to 15 years. Now, follow me on this. In the 1940s, adulthood came very quickly. When you reach 18 to 21, people are going off to war They were going off and managing the family farm. Young women were bearing children. Young couples found themselves with jobs and mortgage payments. And you remember what we call that generation in the 1940s, the greatest generation, because they they shouldered the responsibilities of serious adulthood, and they did it often without complaining and being upset about it. Today, psychologists have noticed that adolescence has been pushed back to age 28, 29, and 30. Some of you have read about this. It's been all over the psychological literature that adolescence has been pushed back to age 28, 29, and in some cases, some cases 30. The 
delay of adulthood because adulthood's hard. It's not easy. There are responsibilities. More fun to live in that elongated adolescence. Now, I would argue it's very easy for us to do that in our faith in Christ. It's very easy for us to crave all the blessings of faith in Christ, but not really want to be adults in Christ. We love all that is hip and trendy and cool and awesome and the next greatest thing, but we don't like the hard stuff, the hard commands, the hard obligations, the difficult obediences. We're not sure we want this. But Jesus does want us to become adults in the faith. In fact, his expectation is that we would joyfully enter into the privileges of adulthood and respond with obedience. So in this passage, Jesus is going to say some hard things. Josh mentioned some of those things last week. Jesus is going to mention more things as we look look into it this week. He wants us to wrestle with these things in an adult-like way. So here's how we're going to examine the passage. We're going to look at the hard teaching of Jesus. We're going to look at three possible ways to respond, and then I want to highlight the right response. Before we dig into it, I want you to see this Calvin and Hobbes cartoon here. Here's, here's the little boy saying, becoming an adult is probably the dumbest thing you could ever do. And there are some followers of Jesus who are in that place. So let's look at how you become an adult follower of Christ. We're going to begin with the hard teaching from Jesus. Um, The reality is some of Jesus' teachings are hard, and he doesn't water them down. We're going to start with, uh, it's not so hard teaching here until you understand the details. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not thirst. Back in those days, bread was the foundational meal. Bread was basic human sustenance. It was not like meat and potatoes. It was not like peanut butter and jelly. It was not like chips and salsa. No, the basic sustenance was bread. Bread that was made daily, bread from fresh ground, whole wheat. Bread was the thing that sustained you. And Jesus is saying something very radical here. He says, I must be your daily sustenance. I must be your source of life. Now that pricked people's ears. Like, seriously? You? You're, you're a man. You're saying you are going to be our sustenance and our source of life? That was hard teaching. But he makes it much harder. By using an I am statement, Jesus is saying, I am God. And that's why I need to be the source of your life. You remember that in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses seven I am statements. John records these seven statements. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I'm the good shepherd and so on. Now, by using these I am statements in the Gospel of John, John is highlighting the fact that Jesus is claiming to be the great I am from the Old Testament. 
He's claiming to be Yahweh God. He's claiming to be Jehovah God of the Old Testament. Remember, God gave his name to Moses. I am who I am. And when you chase down what that term means, it means in part, God is saying, I will be your pragmatic, empowering source, Moses. I'm going to be your pragmatic, empowering source. I'm going to be the one who empowers you practically. I'm going to be the one who empowers you tangibly. I am. So in the seven I am statements, Jesus claiming to be Yahweh is claiming, I am going to pragmatically and practically empower you to live life. In this case, I'm going to be your sustainer. Jesus is saying, I, God in human flesh, am going to empower you in practical ways. I'm the bread of life. Now he gets more precise. What is bread picturing here? Well, the essential meaning of bread has to do with eternal life. But remember what eternal life is. Eternal life is not just the fact that I die and I go to heaven. I hope you realize that. We've been talking a lot about that here at Grace. It's not just that I die and go to heaven. Eternal life is wrapped up first and foremost in your relationship to a person. Jesus defined it this way in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they go to heaven after you die. Well, yes, that's included in eternal life. But first and foremost, it's a relationship that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not primarily a place where you go after you die, although you do get to go to that place. It's primarily an eternal relationship with the living God. It's immersion into the circle of the triune God. And that means your eternal life begins right now. And Jesus, as the bread of your life, wants to be the sustaining force in your life, moment by moment. To sum it up, as the bread of life, Jesus sustains us daily with his life because he's God. That was a hard teaching as Jesus taught in the synagogue. But now we have a problem because as Jesus was teaching, nobody was understanding him. Remember, Jesus is preaching a sermon at the synagogue in Capernaum. And the people who listened to him were his townspeople, the people who, who knew him. You get the impression they didn't want to understand him. You get the impression that their misunderstanding was not intellectual. It was moral. You get the impression that what, what's going on is they're, they're saying, we don't want you to be the bread of our life. We don't want you to be the I am who sustains us. Don't want that. Their misunderstanding was not just intellectual, it was moral. So now Jesus has to disrupt their smugness. And the way he does it is shocking. Uh, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, that's the common word to eat. But that common word was deeply distressing to people. I mean, th this sounds like cannibalism. Like, like, what are you even talking about? So this sermon starts out challenging, and now it's going downhill. Josh pointed out 
how upset they would have been when he preached this last week. It's going downhill. So the people continue to be upset about this, and Jesus doubles down. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is a different word for eat. It's the word trogo, which means to crunch. Trogo is a word that means to crunch potato chips. Have you ever done that? Just like you crunch potato chips? You're just crunching those chips. Cindy and I had this thing when we were first married. Cindy would, would she loved chips and salsa, and she would take the chips and she would crunch them. It, it was loud. It was loud. And, and I can remember thinking, wow, I mean, that's loud. Crunching. She loved those chips. Um, when you've chewed ice, you crunch the ice, right? It can be pretty loud. You crunch carrots and fresh vegetables. It's loud. This word was also used for lions who are crunching on the bones of their victims. It's a very visceral sort of a term. It's almost repulsively ominous when you think about a lion doing this. So what are the people in the synagogue doing as they're listening to the message? Totally freaking out. They're totally freaking out. First, he's talking about something that sounds like cannibalism, and now he's talking about the grossness of crunching on a human individual. He continues to not back down. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, using the Greek word trogo, munching on my flesh and drinking my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. Whoever crunches on me will live because of me. The freak out now is exploding into a crescendo. Does he tone it down a little bit? Does he stop? Guys, you know, come on, I'm talking about a figure of speech here. No. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread our fathers ate and died. Whoever crunches and munches on this bread will live forever. He's doubling down, he's tripling down on this very grotesque figure of speech. Wow. Why does he make this teaching so uncivilized and so hard? Remember, Jesus often deals with hard-hearted people who resist him. So rather than acting like a friend, Jesus acts more like a coach. Let's say that you're playing football and you're down by two touchdowns. You're the quarterback, and it's the Super Bowl, and you are a Super Bowl quarterback. Do you want your, your mom on the sidelines, or do you want a coach? I mean, you love your mom. She's kind and encouraging and good. She'd probably say to you, come on, sweetheart, you can do it. You, you, remember Little League, fifth grade? How you, do you want your mom on the sideline? Or do you want a coach who's going to yell in your ear and say, get after the, the Super Bowl's on the line? Jesus is, is acting more like a coach than he is like a nice, kind friend. And he's acting more than a coach because he is strongly confronting and disrupting their, 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 their unbelief. So 
What is he saying? He's forcing him to understand one thing. Life comes through a relationship with Jesus. It does not come through religion. It does not come through rules. It does not come by doing good works. It does not come by mindless decrees. It comes by ongoing faith in Jesus. It's experienced as an interactive, moment-by-moment relationship. It's described as a meal where there's a sound to the crunching of the meal. Don't you, don't you love meals? If you ask most people in the United States what their favorite holiday is, you know what they'll say? Thanksgiving. Why? Because that's the one time of the year where there's just nothing but enjoying fellowship with each other over a meal. There's something intimate about Thanksgiving. Talked to somebody yesterday who said that their favorite holiday was the family reunion because all the cousins got together. And what did they do? They ate the best meal of the year. There's something intimate about sharing a meal. And Jesus is saying something radical. He's saying, I am the meal. I'm the meal. I'm the meal. And I, I want you to feed on me. Yeah, that, inv- it's an, you know, that does involve feeding on his word. Yeah, it does involve that. But it's feeding on him as a person. It's hungering for him as a person. It's feeding on his love and grace. It's nourishing yourself on Jesus as your Lord and your God. It's allowing yourself to be satisfied in him. So what is eternal life? What is eternal life? Eternal life, first and foremost, is entering into that personal relationship with Jesus and living in daily interactive fellowship with him moment by moment for the rest of your life. John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you. That's eternal life. Heaven, absolutely, but it begins now, and Jesus intends for us to feed on him now. At this point, John the Gospel writer invites us to use our imagination, because in uh, verse 59, Jesus, uh, it, it, John says, these things Jesus taught in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, just pause on that just for a second. Imagine a church service, a synagogue service in Capernaum. Here's what, here's the, what this old synagogue looked like, okay? There's the synagogue. That, that's actually the one that was built over the original synagogue. But Jesus said these things in the synagogue, and there's Capernaum, the, the village, that big you know, circular thing is Peter's house. Uh, obviously, Peter's house didn't have that circular roof over it. But you can see how close Peter's house was to the synagogue, So Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. People are totally freaking out. They're filing out of the synagogue. Believe me, they're not shaking his hand. They're very upset by the things that they've heard. And those people know exactly where Peter lived and where Jesus is is living. And they're just nauseated by the things that they've heard. So let's, let's just think about The mood in Capernaum on that day, it was sour. It was ugly. All right, let's pause for a second and apply this before we we move on. Let's think about this for a second. Are there hard things in the Bible? Yes, there are very hard things in the Bible. 
Jesus teaches hard things about money. He teaches hard things about sexuality. He teaches hard things about gender. He teaches hard things about our bodies. There are hard things in the Bible. And if you want to become an adult in the faith, you've got to start by being willing to listen to the plain meaning of some of these hard things and wrestling over those sayings and then being willing to submit to them. Let let me give you two hard sayings that are crucially important for discipleship. Hard saying number one is what the Bible says about the kingdom. This is a crucial concept. Jesus mentions the kingdom five times in the Gospel of John. It's mentioned extensively in the rest of the Gospels. And the essential teaching that Jesus makes about the kingdom is that in me, the kingdom is near. In me, the kingdom is near. As disciples of Christ, Jesus wants us to embrace that that idea of the nearness of the kingdom and live in his kingdom strength. What does it mean that his kingdom is near? When you go home this afternoon, it's going to be a beautiful day, maybe it gets a little bit hot, and you say, man, I, we need to turn on the air conditioning. Your spouse says, no problem. You go over to the thermostat, and you turn on the air conditioning. Why? Because electricity is near in your house. It's available. Air conditioning is available in the house. It's instantly present whenever you want to turn it on. Air conditioning is near. Electricity is near. This afternoon, you may want to get on the internet and you, you take out your iPhone or your computer and you say, okay, I want to get on the internet. Is that a problem? No, because you've got Wi-Fi in your house. Wi-Fi is very near. It's instantly available. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near, what he's saying is the kingdom presence of God is instantly available to you right now. Walk in it, live in it. Why is that a hard saying? The reason why it's a hard saying is because so many people want to live in the natural and never live in the presence of the supernatural. They live with blinders on as if this physical world is all that there is and there's not an invisible kingdom presence around them that's instantly available to walk in. It's a hard teaching. There's a lot of people who simply will not live in the kingdom presence of God, either because they don't understand it or because they just, they just don't resonate with this supernatural stuff. And Jesus' intention as disciples is that we live in his kingdom presence. Here's another hard teaching. It's the teaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches Nicodemus about the Spirit in John chapter 3. And did Nicodemus go, oh, I get it. That's easy stuff. No, Nicodemus is like completely confused by, by this. And so Jesus teaches about the Spirit in John chapter 7, that it's a, a river inside us. And he teaches about the Spirit in John chapter 15, uh, 14, 15, and 16. And the thing we have to remember about the Spirit is that the Spirit is that member of the Trinity who brings us in touch with the presence of God. The Spirit is that member of the Trinity that brings us in touch with God's power and God's authority. And it's very easy for a lot of Christians to live like this. And Josh pointed this out in a recent message. We believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, and we believe in the Holy Scriptures. Almost like he's the 
like, like the Bible's the third member of the Trinity. And it's God's desire that we, we really embrace the fatherhood of the Father, the abiding presence of the Son, and the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who, who guides us into intimate connection with the Father and the Son. I'm telling you, this is a hard teaching because I run into people all the time who, yeah, I, I know about the Holy Spirit. Is there any relationship with the Holy Spirit? No. No, it's all about the Father, all about the Son, but not about the relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so they don't have any sense of the supernatural power of the Spirit to bring them into intimate connection with, with the Father and the Son. So here's a prayer that I want to encourage you to pray. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a prayer that I'm starting now to pray every morning. It goes like this. Holy Spirit, I praise you that you love Jesus with a perfect love. So I'm asking you, help me love Jesus like you love Jesus. Holy Spirit, help me love Jesus today like you love Jesus. And he will give you the power to do that. Two hard teachings. Are there other ones? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to deal with anger. That's in the Bible. It's tough to deal with suffering in his name. That's in the Bible. The point is, spiritual adults need to hear hard teaching and be willing to accept it in the Spirit's power. You know, here's the interesting thing. Jesus said, my yoke my, is easy and my burden is light. But he didn't say the teaching would be easy. Some of the teaching is really hard. But when we yoke up with Jesus, he empowers us to carry out even that really hard teaching. Now we see how people begin to respond. One option uh, for people who encounter hard teaching is that they just stumble over Jesus' words and they simply stop following. John 6, 60, many of his disciples heard this and they said, this is, this is a hard saying. You better believe it. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Okay, let me take you back to Capernaum. It's a Saturday. That's when they met. The sermon is over. The people are filing out. They're grumbling. I can hear one man saying, I'm, I'm done with this guy. I am not going to follow him anymore. Now, we're not talking about Jesus' 12 disciples. We're talking about the multitudes who are beginning to follow him. The multitudes, not the 12. The multitudes are going, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I'm not following this guy. I, I can just hear husbands saying to, saying to their wives, honey, do not, this guy's weird. Don't follow him. I can see wives saying to their husbands, I don't want you anywhere near that guy. He's going to steer our family astray. I can hear teens saying, I don't get him. I totally do not get Jesus. Like, what did he just say about crunching on flesh. And, no, they're leaving. So after, after this, many of the disciples, not the 12, but the big group, turned back and no longer walked with him. Now that, that is true of every culture. You know, there are casual Christians who encounter the same thing. They hear the hard teaching of Jesus and say, okay, forget it. I'm done. That's, that's weird. Or that really offends me. Or that's not what my friends are talking about on Facebook. 
that's not the stream of Christian books that I'm reading. It's not what's hip and trendy in the culture. So I'm not, I'm not going to do this. I love what Oswald Chambers said. I know a lot of you guys read Oswald Chambers. This is kind of a long quote, but he says this, there's an aspect of Jesus that chills the heart of a disciple to the core and makes the whole spiritual life gasp for breath. That's what he was doing in the synagogue. This strange being with his face set like a flint and his striding determination strikes terror into me. He's no longer my counselor and comrade. He's taken up with a point of view that I know nothing about, and I'm amazed at him. At first, I was confident that I understood Jesus, but now I'm not so sure. I begin to realize that there's a distance between Jesus Christ and me. I'm no longer familiar with him. He's ahead of me, and he never turns around. I have no idea where he's going, and the goal has become strangely far off. That often happens when you encounter the hard sayings and the hard teachings of Jesus. So what happens? Well, some stop affiliating with a local church. They love the easy stuff. Hard teachings make them bolt. Some become their own religious editors. They cobble together a doctrine from this book and a doctrine from this song. They cobble together something from a Bible verse that is like a bumper sticker. Still a good Bible verse, but it's a short, short, fun one. They cobble this together and they edit their own Christian faith. Some passively withdraw from the faith. Some renounce their faith altogether. If you look at what's going on in our culture today, there's been the rise of the so-called nuns. The nuns are people who practice no religion in particular, and it's risen quite a bit even since the year 2007. Some people just withdraw. They, they just they say, ah, I'm done. That's one option. The other option is what happens um, um, with uh, the family of Jesus. Uh, others manage Jesus' message so that it becomes more popular. And we see this in John 7, 1 through 5. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see, see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. I want you to imagine Jesus with his brothers one day. His brothers were saying, Jesus, what are you doing hanging out here in Galilee, this backwater place? Look, if, if you want to be known, get down there to Jerusalem, show yourself, create a buzz, do some amazing miracles, do some Facebook posts and some Instagram posts and get your Twitter account going and make sure that you market yourself, market this amazing, this amazing ministry that you have. Why do they want him to do this? Well, he's, he's their brother. You know, Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and he had at least two sisters, seven siblings in the family, plus Joseph and Mary. That's nine, it's a big family, nine people in the family. And the brothers are saying, man, come on, Jesus, you got to market yourself, market your ministry, make this pop, make this buzz. And then it says, because not even his brothers believed in him. They, they, didn't, believe, they didn't really believe his mission. They just thought it was really cool that he could do all these miracles and that he could teach in such an awesome way. 
And just like it's possible to stumble over Jesus' words and stop following, it's also possible to manage Jesus' words so that you only do the things that make you happy. Look, you know, prosperity theology is, is, is all over, in pockets all over the world. In America in 2018, prosperity theology is very subtle. It's very subtle. It's very difficult for somebody to get on television or the radio and preach an open, overt prosperity theology without people going, that's wrong. Because people are pretty sophisticated in how they interpret things. So it's, it's subtle. It's subtle. It's sort of subtle, and it's cloaked in language that makes it more acceptable. But I will tell you, a prosperity sort of theology is, it ripples through American culture right now just as much as it has in times past. And a lot of times what that's about is I, I just want to soften the hard teaching of Jesus. I want to make it palatable for a lot of different people. And I want people to know that if you just follow Jesus, he's going to make you rich. He's going to give you an amazing destiny. All you got to do is reach out and that destiny is available for you. Well, that theology eliminates a lot of the hard sayings of Jesus. And it makes it seem like Christianity is a way to make me more successful. I can be a successful rich guy if I just start ramping up my, my Christian faith. Obviously, those two options are wrong. Some leave the faith altogether. Some want to manage Jesus' message to make it more palatable. Here's what the disciples do. The disciples joyfully live in the messy middle of life doing hard things, okay? So I have this little graph here, and this little graph is, is, a, is I think, a good graph because you know how sometimes spiritual growth looks like the stock market, New York Stock Exchange stock market. It's up and it's down. In actual fact, for a lot of people, they encounter growth like this. There's just this messy middle, and they look back at sections of the life and go, I don't have any idea what that was about, but God was there, and God grew me there. We see a little bit of this in this passage. John 6, 67, Jesus says, okay, 12 disciples, Matthew, you know, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, and so on. Okay, you, you guys, you 12, do you want to go his way as well? Because everybody in Capernaum, they were, they were leaving. I'm done. I'm out of here. Okay, 12 disciples, what about you guys? You guys want to leave as well? That's a great question because Jesus knows their, knows their heart. And, uh, you know, um, they, these disciples are, are oh, wow, this was a hard message. Oh, man, what are we going to do? hard message. Jesus knows their heart. And so here's what Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now stop there. Stop there. This is what, this is what Peter's not saying. He's not saying, Lord, where else should we go? I mean, like, like we, want, we want our ticket to heaven after we die. That's not what he's saying. Peter's looking at this thing completely holistically. He's saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You 
have the words of eternal life that begins now. You have the words of life. Life that fills me today. Life that fills me tomorrow. Life that's going to fill me the next day. Life that I can look at yesterday and say, that was life. You have the words of life. Life that sustains me. Life that grows me. That's what he's saying. And yes, of course, heaven at the end of my days. Eternal life is life in Jesus now. Eternal life is life in Jesus tomorrow. Eternal life is life in Jesus at the moment of death. Eternal life is a resurrection body as I enter into heaven. Eternal life is life in Jesus for all eternity. It's, It's the whole package. And what Peter's saying, Lord, to whom else should we go? You're the one that provides this rich and abiding and robust eternal life. You fill our souls with meaning now, now and later, of course. You fill our lie, that vacuum in our soul, that hole in our soul now. And yes, it's going to be filled for all of eternity. Where else do we go to find the one who fills the hole in our soul with meaning in life? There's no place else to go. And I think Peter, in effect, is saying, we'd rather have hard teaching and experience life than be hip, cool, and trendy, and self-absorbed, and have kind of a fake life. That's what he's saying. You'd think Jesus would congratulate Peter. You'd think Jesus would go, Peter, you're so awesome. I love I loved what you came up with. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He continues with the theme of, of hard. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The word there is diabolos, which means adversary. See, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is an adversary, indicating indicating that even life within the twelve is not going to be easy, that there is going to be some adversarial difficulties Yes, even among the most committed collection of disciples, there's going to be some adversarial struggles. There's going to be some challenges, even among the most committed of Jesus' disciples. Is that hard teaching? It's hard teaching. We want smooth sailing and ease and comfort. And Jesus is continuing by by saying, look, eternal life is now. But there's going to be some challenges, even in the midst of this incredibly robust eternal life. Why does Jesus have to be so graphic? Because he wants us to be spiritual adults. And here's the big idea. Spiritual adults make Jesus their life. He's their daily bread. Therefore, they feed on him. They savor him, they treasure him, they dine with him, they dine on him so that he brings nutrition to every part of their being. He brings spiritual nutrition to every part of their being. So I have one takeaway, and only one, and that is be an adult. Be an adult. Being an adult in the faith means you begin today, this morning, by saying, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's have a moment of silence and just express gratitude and thanksgiving to Jesus for whatever hard thing 
is going on in your life. And uh, one of our elders, David Rumpf, is going to come in then in, in a second and close us in prayer. Lord God, this week, may we feed on you and really um, feed on you in that uh, Trogo sort of way. Father, where your teachings are hard, uh, pray that you'd illuminate them to our hearts. Father, help us to uh, joyfully live in the messy middle and to do the hard things and to walk with you as spiritual adults. Amen.